Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, again, happy Memorial Day weekend to all of you. Um, now, obviously, Memorial Day weekend's not a religious holiday. Uh, and every time there's a, like a non-religious holiday that's, that's brought up that we do, like a Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, Thanksgiving, you know, all of these, um, I get questions at some point, like, why do we do it? And it's not being critical. It's just kind of curious, like, why do we, why do, we do it? And I, I can't, you know, speak for every one of them in the same way. Um, but when it comes to Memorial Day, at the core of, of what Memorial Day is, uh, beyond just the, you know, the barbecues and the mattress sales and the, you know, like all that kind of stuff, right? Beyond that, it, it really, it's a day of mourning. Um, that's what Memorial Day is at its core. And as Christians, we're called in, in Romans twelve fifteen to grieve with those that grieve. That's a part of our, our community life together. Now, we're also called, called to rejoice with those who rejoice, and rejoicing is so much more fun. But we're also called to grieve. That's part of, of the, that's part of a community of believers in a fallen world going through life together um, and trying to be faithful to, to God's scriptures. Now, as you saw, we have many vil- uh, military veterans that are a part of this church, um, including many who have, have passed on and, un- and even some who have died in war. So, yeah, w- we do have cause to mourn here uh, at Rosewood Church. And similar to a funeral, uh, this day lets us pause and appreciate the life and sacrifice of the one or the ones who are no longer with us, uh, to feel our own mourning, and to also celebrate the promises of God that one day there will, not, there will be a time where there is not weeping and sorrow. And all the things that bring death will eventually one day be done away with, including even war itself. And that's what we're going to focus on today, is how Jesus's announcement of the kingdom, especially as he stood before Pilate uh, later on in the story of his life, um, how his announcement of the kingdom plays into uh, this this day and, and the day that our mourning will come to an end. And in order to do that, we're going we're gonna to go back in the Old Testament, we're going to kind of follow the story forward until eventually we we get to Jesus, but um, there's a, I just want to share one interaction I had with a, with a friend. This was a long time back, but what he said with me, what he said to me really kind of stuck. Um, so I had a friend who, he, um, he served in the Marines. Uh, he served, he was deployed multiple times. Eventually he left the Marines and he went on and became a, a like a government contractor. And so he was still kind of in that, in that world. Um, eventually though, uh, he was, he, I mean, he, he shared with me some things, but I'm, you know, many things he didn't share, obviously. Uh, there was one day, it was a, really the last day that he served in, the, in that way or, or worked as a contractor. It was a, he got into a hand-to-hand fight, and it was, it was one of those, it was going to be him or the other guy, and he's still here. So, 
Uh, in the midst of that, he was injured, and he was injured in a way that caused him to just not be able to work in that field uh, again. And, um, but, and part of that, though, what he, the, just the, the injury and the things that he saw and, and even the things that he did kind of led him to look at things a little bit differently. And, and here, here's what he said to me, and again, I'll, I'll never forget it. He said that um, his relationship with violence had become an affair. That, that for him, in his own heart, uh, somewhere along the line, he had crossed a line where his relationship with violence was, was now an affair. Now, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we all have a relationship with death and violence. Death and violence impacts all of us. Uh, violence is around us. The propensity for violence is, is within all of us. Uh, it's a fallen world. And it's a reality, though it ought not to be an affair. And, and I bring this up because for the Israelites, their relationship with violence had become an affair over time, which resulted in them actually asking for, for uh, a king rather than for God to be their king. And, and, but we'll get there. Let's back up even further. Let's back up into the book of Judges. Judges is a, a fascinating book of the Bible. Uh, if you haven't read it or it's been a while, uh, there, there's just like judge after judge after series of, of judges, these kind of military, oftentimes military leaders who help to free uh, Israel from whatever situation or captivity that they might, uh, they might find themselves. Now for the first like third of, of judges, um, everyone is, is um, the, the king or the judges and, and the people um, are, are engaging in this warfare uh, in ways that are consistent with um, the commands that God gives as to how war is, is, ought, to be, is ought to be fought. Uh, for what, what God said to them, as, especially as Israel's coming into the promised land, is, is that basically one of the parameters is uh, you, you fight in order to uh, claim and protect your land. And, and in so doing, you also kind of claim and, and hold defense of your own identity, right? So for them, it was more than just the land. It was also, uh, it was also their, their identity. Uh, but, but underneath all of it, under all of their fighting, here's what was true. That the victory was won by God, not swords and spears. Consistently, that's what was true. That victory was won by God, not swords and spears. And so that's why when you, after, uh, after battles, when you read the Old Testament, you see these, these battles that happen. And when Israel wins, they celebrate. They celebrate with words of praise because they are giving back the, their praise to the one that they knew carried them through in victory uh, to God. Now, Israel, Israel had a military. Here's what we're kind of getting at. Israel had a military, but... As a, as a nation or as a people, they rejected militarism. Okay, now militarism is when you, is basically when military becomes an idol and you put your faith and your hope in the power of a military force rather than in the power and the force of God. And um, so as they fought within the accepted boundaries of, of God's commands and, um, you know, the lesson over and over, and they continued to, to win. And, and when they were not consistent with, with God's law and, and God was not with them, they would lose, right? It was just like really easy. It was a very easy equation to figure out. Like if God's with them, they won. If God wasn't, they, they lost. It was pretty simple to know. Uh, but uh, over and over again, again, victory came from God, not by their swords and spears. 
In fact, in some cases, the military was, was even purposefully whittled down in order, to, uh, in order to help prove this point and make there be no mistake about who won about Israel's victory. And one such case is Gideon in Judges 6 through 8. It's I think maybe I think it's the longest story of, of one judge in the uh, in judges. If it's not, it's one of the longest, right? Uh, it, it's a lengthy story about Gideon, and um, Gideon starts with thirty-two thousand men in his army, and it says that the Lord said to Gideon, "You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me." My strength has saved me, right? So it's not that God can't win. It's not the issue at all. It, it's, that, it's that there are too many men and they're going to give all the glory to, to, uh, to one another and to their victory and to the force of their victory rather than, than the force of God. Um, and, and that's how it works, okay? So they go from, um, from 32,000 and they whittle it all the way down to 300. And God looks at the 300 and he says, perfect. Let's take on the nation of the Midianites. Those 300, what are they thinking? But they, they are faithful to it. And, and long story short, they win, right? Like Gideon in the 300, they send, you know, the tail between the legs. They are running, okay? And so um, the, it says that the remaining Midianites, um, they flee, and that Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan. Uh, the Jordan is the eastern boundary of the promised land, of the land that God gave to them. Okay, to the east of Jordan is not the promised land. To the west is the promised land, okay? So they went to the Jordan, and they crossed it. They crossed it. Here's what that means. This is the beginning of something that will spiral and spiral out of control. They didn't just cross a geographic boundary, what was really crossed, the line that really mattered, was the line that Gideon crossed in his own heart. When he went from, from being faithful of God's command to, to take on these, these foreign powers that, and, and reclaim the land for, for Israel, he crossed that line from doing that to a personal vendetta. Okay, because as things go, in his pursuit, he goes east of the Jordan. Um, as he's there, not in his own land, right? He comes across people. It's their land. It's not his land. He comes across people, and he says, I need some food. My, my army's hungry. We're in hot pursuit. And they're like, no. And he's like, I'm going to get you back. And he does. When he comes back through, he, he fillets them. He kills them for not helping them. And then eventually he, he catches, they, they catch their prey. Uh, they, they kill the last of the Midianites, the king, the, the people who are, um, the people that are chasing down. And then he returns to Israel with his army. Gideon returns to Israel and he returns a new man. He creates an idol when he gets there. He creates an idol for the people to worship. Upon his return, he's a man that's now marked by pride and arrogance. He takes a ton of wives. Basically, what, what he does, here's what happens to, to Gideon, is he transforms from being the one who is meant to be, the, the one who leads the army to help, to, uh, to help Israel to be the, these, this holy nation, this light to the world. And he comes back, and he is now adopting all of the characteristics of the Canaanites that he and, his, and, and the nation of Israel were to, uh, were to push against. They were supposed to be different. And now they're not. So eventually he dies and his son takes over. 
There's a coup against his son. We're going to just kind of skip through some of these things real fast. But um, there's a coup. His son, his son takes um, uh, against his son. His, his son butchers a, a number of cities, Israelite cities, not Canaanite, is, Israelite cities. Um, but then after that, it all, it all gets better. Uh, no, it doesn't. It, it just keeps getting worse. Uh, the, the, the rest of Judges is this terribly bloody story of wars that are started without God's blessing. There's stories of, of child sacrifices to try to, to get God back on, on their side. Uh, there's even a civil war in which uh, Israel fights Israel, and there are more Israelites killed in the civil war than all of the Canaanites killed in all of the other battles of conquest combined. More Israelites are killed. This is one of those reasons why, like, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it was right. And just because someone did it in the Bible doesn't mean they were right in doing it. So now Judges is broke up into a number of smaller stories of military leaders and, and such. But, um, but as a whole, uh, Judges tells one story. It tells a story of, of people faithful to God who, who devolved into... Um, into, frank, into militarism, into devolved into a people who, who now put their hope and, and their trust in the military rather than their hope and their trust in the Lord, the one whom was bringing these battles. Now, the worst of the story actually doesn't come until the next book of the Bible. So First uh, Samuel 8. Um, in First Samuel 8, Israel calls out for a king. What's so bad about that? We have kings, right? Presidents, leaders. Like, we're used to having some sort of figurehead be the, the, the leader. Well, in the words of the Israelites, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, if you remember what I said at the top, God ordained war for a time in order to seize, you know, land and, and to protect identity, to give the Israelites a, a place to be. And this was a way of, of helping to, to, take, uh, to take that place and solidifying them, again, as God's unique people, a light to the world, right? But now, now, at this point, it's all, it's all gone, it's, it's eroded with generations. They want a king, and they're so, like, straightforward with it. We want a king because we want to be like everybody else. You know, that whole prerogative of being light to the world? No, no, no. We just want to be like everybody else. And specifically, again, they're looking for this military king to lead the battles with, and, and to lead the battles, again, with strength that was, that was intended for God. To lead with the strength of God, but to transfer that strength now from God to some person. And God sees what's going on. He knows what's, what's happening. So he says to Samuel, who's trying to mediate all this, he says, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. It is their lust for blood, their affair with violence, violence taken to an extreme and too far of a degree that is at the core of their rejection of God. And we see it manifested finally in their rejection of God as king, asking for another king, uh, another person, a person to be their king. 
Now, the story plays out from there. You know, some, you might know some of the stories, some of the kings, right? Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. Most of them are a mix of, of, uh, of good and bad. But a human king was, was never God's intention for his people. Every one of them was a substitute for the kingship, that God, that, uh, the kingship of God that was rejected so long ago. But the origin story of all of this, while it may have been forgotten by so many people, it was remembered by the prophets, prophets like uh, uh, Hosea, and and Micah, who chastised their militarism. Not the military, not war, not even violence universally. But he calls, they, they call out the militarism, the military idolatry. And they condemn what they have come to trust in, that they have come to trust in the power of the military rather than the power of God. And Isaiah gives then a, a vision of what this day will be like, a day, a day to come. That, that, and, and rather than chastising the past and, and, and commentating on the present, um, he, he takes some time to look towards the future of God's people. And he says that, that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So the prophet is looking towards this future time, a time that, um, that we still haven't experienced, right? When war will be overcome, where nation will no longer take up and kill another nation. A time when even the profession of the soldier will no longer be necessary. Even God's own means of justifying war in the Old, in the old Covenant would 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 make way for this new covenant. And, and, um, and Isaiah says that the one who will do this, it's not just going to happen out of thin air. He says that there's one who will do this. It's the Messiah. He says, for to us a child is born. This is, see, more than Christmas, right? To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And all of this now finally sets the stage uh, for Jesus to arrive as a king representing a kingdom without war. And, and, and with all these talks of kings and idolatry and war, you know, let's, okay, now let's jump ahead to, uh, to Jesus specifically when he's standing before Pilate. So this is the last days of his life. Uh, so we've skipped a lot of the story, right? But we're moving straight ahead to Jesus standing before Pilate where Pilate sets him up and he says, are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer. Okay, and after what we've been talking about, maybe it kind of makes sense as why. Because Pilate understood the concept of a king as one who was powerful, violent, forceful, military leader. That was a king or an emperor or a leader in, in Rome. For, for the Israelites, that's what was meant oftentimes by king. Powerful, violent, forceful military leader. And since Herod also has already called himself king of the Jews, if Jesus is to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the king of the Jews, you're right. I'm the, am I the king of the Jews? Yeah, I'm the king of the Jews. Then, then he is just, I mean, not that his, I mean, his days are numbered, right? But that's, again, an automatic death sentence that, that his, uh, he, he's a revolutionary now who's, who's trying to usurp the, the power uh, of Herod, the king of the Jews. So he's got to be killed. So the next thing that Jesus says, it, like, it has to be worded very carefully. 
Okay, because is he a king? Yes. Is he the king? Yes, he's the king. But not a king like Pilate and Herod might project onto someone. So to be truthful that he is the king, Jesus redefines kingship. And he does it this way. It's brilliant. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. In other words, Jesus' kingdom is not going to follow the script that has been, uh, that other, that other, these other nations and other worldly kingdoms have have followed in history, including even the kings of the kingdom of of Israel. Um, In God's rule and reign, the king will speak peace to the nations. The the king will offer forgiveness. The king will, will love both friends and enemies, and God, or Jesus, is the model, the living model of this kingship as the king. He is the one who taught that the, the first would be last and the last would be first, that the weak would be used to shame the strong, just like in Gideon's army, where the weak would be used to shame the strong, that if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek, and, and that the greatest among you, if you want to be really great, then come prepared to serve, not to be served. Memorial Day is, a, is a, a day, it's a weekend of mourning for those who have become victim of the horrific violence of war. Violence that many of us know nothing about and should be extremely grateful that we don't. Violence that is our unfortunate reality until the day that Christ comes again and redeems all things. And as with any occasion of mourning, today is a good reminder that things aren't as they, as they should be. That Jesus is king, but his king, his kingdom has not fully come. If things were perfect, today would be just any other day. But things aren't perfect. We live in a fallen world, and that's the reality. And as Jesus professes to Pilate, Jesus' kingdom, it's not going to be and is not like the other kingdoms of the world. Yet, here's the irony. Here's the irony. That his kingdom of peace was made possible with an act of violence. That Jesus brings about this kingdom of peace. But the linchpin of it, what has to happen, is an act of violence. Jesus' death and his followers' subsequent suffering are the means by which peace, freedom, and justice, the characteristics of the kingdom, are set into motion until the day of their fulfillment, a day that we have not yet tasted. And as we, as we, as we memorialize on a day like this, um, we remember the few who died for the many. But Memorial Day is also an opportunity to look beyond this, to see the hope that is to come, that also, in addition to this, that we worship the one who died for all. And because of this one, one day our mourning will be no more. Death will die. 
Sin will be defeated. As, as, the prophets, as the prophets predicted, nation will no longer rise up against nation. Brother will not rise up against brother. Tools of war just won't have a purpose anymore. And they'll be put into means of growing and prosperity. And all things will come into the harmony of God. One day that will happen. And unfortunately, we all have to live with the hope of the one day in the reality of the day today, of the lives that we live. We are grateful for those who served, and we also recognize that one day, this won't have to be this way. And that one day Jesus will come, and he will redeem all things, and war will be a forgotten memory. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we, we center our hearts on the redemptive and the mournful things of this day. God, I, I pray for those who went, who, who were deployed, who saw things, experienced things that so many of us could, could never possibly imagine and still live with the scars uh, to show for it. Especially, God, we, we pray for those mental and emotional scars of people coming home with PTSD, for the staggering figure of how many ex-military individuals take their lives, God. God, it's not meant to be this way. That the horrific nature of war, it's not just something that happens elsewhere, that, that everyone involved brings a little bit of it home. God, this is not how it ought to be. And Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us in this fallen world in the ways that we need it. That you'd comfort us when we need comforting. That as we mourn the place that so many held in our hearts, that it's just, it's no longer there. Generations of men and women wiped away. God, comfort us through your Spirit. Help us to, to sort through these emotions that we have and to grow closer to you through them. So Jesus, I, I pray that we, would, that we would, in the midst of the fun and the things that we're going to do, God, just to allow us as a congregation to, to do what we are called to do, to mourn with those who mourn. And thank you, God, that as we do, your spirit is there with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.